welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I am so excited to be here today with my guest, Maureen Ross Jem. So Maureen has a master's of science in education. She's the CEO of Emerge Leadership Academy and began training leaders across New England in 2015 after a 30-year corporate career. She's a motorcycle riding grandmother and a personal growth advocate. Maureen trains and coaches leaders who want to make an impact. She is an empath, which is one of the reasons why she's here on this show, and passionate about helping her clients step into their full potential and develop others on their team. As a personality expert, Maureen helps her audiences to own their gifts and embrace the differences in the diversity of others to build better relationships. After living through her teenage years as a drug addict and an alcoholic, Maureen stepped into recovery and created an awesome life. She has deep compassion for helping others and is the host of the Emerge Evolve Lead podcast, which is where we connected, and Recovery at Work program to help those who are ready. Maureen, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Jen. I'm delighted to see you again after having had you on my podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. I mean, we connected and I mean, there are so many things even within your bio that I'm just like, oh, we have to talk about this. And I really wanted to bring you on to talk about addiction because I think that this is, you know, you and I were talking before we got on about how there definitely seems to be an intersection between being an empath and dealing with substance abuse issues, uh, self-soothing, self-medicating. I also really wanted to talk about your, you know, where you took this, your recovery and your expertise around understanding personalities, understanding relationships, because, you know, I think that that's another piece of the equation. So uh, let me see. So before we go into expertise, let's start at the beginning. So tell me, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> yes, darling. <laughs> you know, Jen, I am a typical Irish Catholic white girl, right? Who was raised in a family of six kids. My mom had them all in eight years, eight and a half years. And I was number three. So I was right in the middle of the pack and I was pretty much told what to do and when to do it and how to do it and how to be and what to say and what to eat and what to wear and when to go to bed. You see what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, I was just doing it and doing what I was told. I did have a few choices in my life. Like, did I want to go to Girl Scouts or volleyball? And I chose Girl Scouts. <laughs> But um, I didn't have a lot of choices and, and it's just too hard in a large family like that. But when I got into my teenage years, I just still wanted to be one of the pack. I wanted to blend in. I wanted to fit in. I was not a leader and it, it, I didn't think I was anyways. I just wanted to fit in. 
um, because mm-hmm. that's what I was taught. That's how I was programmed and conditioned, right? But um, that's, you know, in my time, what we what were we doing, right? In the 70s, it was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so as I, you know, was trying to make my way, I realized, of course, in puberty that I had a shit ton of emotions, if you will. Mm, mm, okay to mm. swear on your podcast? Yes, it's okay to swear. (laughs) (laughs) And good, because I'm an addict. And, you know, even though I do have, you know, 38 years of sobriety at this point, I still think that language and and cursing makes life so much more colorful and easy to deal with. (laughs) And my answer to you is, is my answer to that is, fuck yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'm with you, sister. Okay. So I got into my teenage years. I hated school. I had a very bad attitude. I just didn't like authority figures one single bit. I didn't, I was done with being told what to do and when to do it and how to do it. I wanted to just be high all the time because fitting in was hard, right? Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to fit in with my peer group and not listen to adults anymore. I mean, that's really our job as teenagers is to break away. We have to break away. But I also had a very sort of loud personality. I was not a quiet, shy girl at all. And so I was the one that was like dancing on the tables and doing things that I should never have been doing once I got a few beers in me kind of thing. Uh, I was also an adventure seeker. So I wanted to try everything. And, you know, it didn't matter what you gave me, what kind of pill I was popping it. The only reason... Jen, that I probably didn't get messed up or mixed up with intravenous drug use was because I hated needles. When I was 14 and 15, I was drinking and drugging every single day, smoking pot, smoking cigarettes, doing all the things. And I was sick all the time. I was sick, Mm. sick, sick all the time with bronchitis and I had mononucleosis and I was always had some sort of virus. And what was happening in my body, of course, I was trying to process all this new crap I was putting into it. My brain wasn't big enough to deal with it all. I didn't have any, you know, neocortex. I didn't have any good, uh, you know, analyzing abilities. (laughs) Yeah. No impulse control whatsoever (laughs) yet. That's right. Yeah. So I was sick all the time and I had, and my mom was a nurse in a hospital. So she was constantly bringing me to get me checked out. And I, here I was getting blood taken all the time and I just learned to hate needles. So that's Mm -hmm. the good, that's the good news, I suppose, part of it, but it was, it led me to places that I, you know, it was, it was really difficult. Um, I didn't want to go to college. I hated going to school because I was, was too much authority figures there. And I got a job in a bar as soon as I graduated high school. And I was only 17 at the time. The drinking age was 18 back then. I remember when the drinking age was 18. I was right? dating. I, yeah, when I was when I was I was still younger than 18, but I was dating an 18 year old for a period of time. And he uh, he had a um, he had his parents had given him the old woodshed kind of, you know, like uh-huh. the, or the old tool shed, which he had turned into his man cave. There you go. The whole place just reeked. It was uh huh. Oh, I had one too. Horrible stale booze smell. We had this little back porch on the back of our garage. Uh-huh. It was all screened in. It was like supposed to be a three season porch, and we had a pool back there. So, but during the winter months, we would just go out there when our parents didn't think that we were there, and yeah, and drink and drug and all that stuff. So, 
anyways, I don't, I don't miss those days. That's for sure. It was very difficult. I don't, I have so much compassion for teenagers nowadays. And I do think that because I'm an empath, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know any of it. I just knew that I couldn't stand feeling all the pain and despair and the sadness and of the heartbreaks and the, you know, not just the physical stuff, but like even my friends, any, any slight, you know, of word, which teenagers are tough to be with because they're, they, you know, we're all trying to establish ourselves and figure out who we are. And anyways, I was very much out of alignment with who I was. And so I did those things to escape, right? Mm-hmm. I just was mm-hmm. always chasing. I wanted so much to just be happy. So I was looking for the perfect boss. I was looking for the perfect man, boyfriend or whatever. I was looking for the perfect job after high school, um, something that would fix me, that would make me feel better. And when all of those things failed, I just used every night. It was a habit by then anyway. Right, right. So I've got, I'm curious about two things. One is just, um, I know you grew up in New England from, it looks, you know, from what, from your bio. And I was just wondering, like, what state were you, did you grow up in? I am in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut, but I actually took a geographical cure to Texas. And I took a geographical cure to Ohio. Okay. Okay. That's a little (laughs) bit further south, but not so too much. But Texas is a lot further south and a lot further south. It was really nice. I didn't have to scrape my windshield or do any of that stuff. I was right on the lake in Cleveland. So there was no such thing as getting away from the snow. But um, yeah. So I did two years in San Antonio and Mm -hmm. I also lived for two years in Austin. I moved again to Austin and I kept trying to figure out who I was. I was like 21 when I moved there. And then I finally in Austin, um, after the move from San Antonio to Austin, I didn't have any friends left. I hit my bottom. I, I, if I couldn't stand drinking alone anymore, I would drive to San Antonio to be with my friends. But in those hours of drinking alone all the time, it was very obvious what that I had a problem. Mm-hmm. I was also a manager of a wholesale picture frame supply company. Nobody respected me. Nobody knew me. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. I didn't. Mm. I was filled with anxiety every single day. I, I was just beside myself when um, I had been in San Antonio with a boyfriend who was the manager. I was the customer service manager, right? Don't, don't do that. Don't get involved with the people you work with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't go there, little buckaroo. <laughs> when you're 23, you know, yeah. it's gonna, you know. So, anyways, we moved, they shipped us both to Austin, but he was done with me. We had been going out for about a year, and I think so much had happened. It was it was one of those things where I think on the sly, he said, you guys, when you ship us here, um, you know, get, make sure we get separate apartments <laughs> and and then, well, what they did was they sent him to Phoenix. So he was gone within like three months. I learned how to do the manager position and I, I had to take over with that, but they were all new people. They didn't know me. They were all older than me. They were all men. Most of them were Puerto Rican or, or, and excuse me, Mexican. The Mexicans were down there. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I was, um, very much, um, a minority, right? Yeah. So I yeah. 
was not in the majority. And I, it was a very, very difficult time. So it brought me to my knees. It brought me to my bottom. And I ended up reaching out and getting the help that I needed. Um, I tried by reading self-help books and all of that. And I just couldn't do it without kicking the habit, but I couldn't do that on my own. So I did get into a 12-step program and I was able to have a major transformation at that time because I didn't have any people to drink with. So that was awesome. That was a wonderful um, situation that I found myself in, in that way, you know, because it wasn't, I didn't know anybody who dealt drugs or anything. And I, it was too much to have to drive back to San Antonio. And I got a different job and I got new friends and, it, and, you know, it was, it was good after that. And it was the beginning of, of a whole new thing. It's sort of funny thinking about how you took a geographic cure to Texas, but you actually kind of really did end up having a geographic cure being moved. It was, to it worked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we, when we moved here, we live um, out in a fairly rural area. And when we moved here from, we were living, we'd been living in the city, my husband and I before, and we could get takeout every single night. Like we could get crap, like bad food every single night. And when we got here, there was at this time, there was no delivery services. There was no takeout anywhere. We had to like think we were seven miles away from the closest store and we had to think beforehand. So our whole lifestyle around food completely changed when we moved here because of availability. And I do think that sometimes making things less available makes it easier to stop doing something that's harmful. But I want to go back because there's a piece to the story that for me, I'm like, there's, there's a, I saw a gap and it was, and where I heard the gap was from the point of you sound like you were like the absolutely like perfect, well-behaved, go along to get along child. And then all of a sudden there comes this point, this pivot where you go from being a very well-behaved child to being an absolute, like a hellion, like you, you know, and it's true. (laughs) And so I'm really curious about like, what do you think, or what do you know? Like what happened? How did that pivot happen? Because that feels really significant to me. Yeah, it it is significant. A couple of things happened, big, big things in my, in my life, in my family life. One is that my father and my mother they drank every day. It was their lifestyle. So the drinking started at about, well, happy hour, five o'clock, drinks mm-hmm. after work. Mm-hmm. And then my father lost his job. So he started drinking a lot more when I was, um, you know, 10, 11. It was the energy crisis. Do you remember when people had to wait in in their car at a gas station for like miles to get gas? It was like, that was that time and Nixon and Watergate and all of that stuff. Well, my dad lost his job. And so he didn't have any money coming in. And I think he just leaned heavily on alcohol as his crutch. Mm -hmm. He was a very mild mannered drunk and he was, you know, just would pass out, but he was emotionally unavailable. Second thing that happened is when I was 11, our house burnt down because my dad fell asleep on the couch with a cigarette oh. and had to drag the couch burning out of the front hallway and it caught on the wallpaper and flew right up the stairs. Now, I was babysitting next door at the time. 
And all of my four brothers were in the house. My sister was all babysitting across town. It was one o'clock in the morning. My dad had been waiting up on the couch watching TV and probably fell asleep with a cigarette drunk, right? Right. So everybody did get out of the house okay. Um, it was my dad. He came over to the house I was babysitting in across the way. I was sleeping on the waterbed sofa waiting for the you know people to get home. Anyways, he used the phone to call um, my sis- the place where my sister, to make sure she wasn't in the house because she was the only one unaccounted for. And I finally said, Dad, what is happening? What's the matter? And he said, our house almost burnt down. I mean, I took a quarter of a turn to the right and I suddenly out this huge bay window, I saw our house. It would it wasn't almost burnt out. It was yeah, burning. I was like flames leaping. Almost burnt down. Yeah. No, it was on fire. And there was it was a seven alarm fire. So there was light oh my God. blazing everywhere. Red and yellow, blue, white, you know, and then the orange and yellow flames into the sky. I mean, it was the scariest freaking thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I started shaking in my boots. And he just said he had third degree burns on his hands and his feet. Oh my and he goodness. Said to me, I, you know, I can't stay here, but don't worry. Robin's okay. She's not in the house. Everyone got out. I will be okay. You know, and then he left me and he had got into, and then he went into the hospital. You know, he, the ambulance took him to the hospital to, to minister to his burns. And uh, Mrs. Uh, Milva came over mm-hmm. and sat with me um, in the middle of the night. So our family got torn apart. We were a family of eight, six kids. And Two of my brothers went to stay at one house. I went to stay at my girlfriend, you know, Jill's house. My sister Robin stayed at Celia's. My, you know, Larry and Paul ended up going to another, you know, friend's house. And my parents, they probably were in a hotel somewhere. I don't really know. For about a week or two until they got us all back together again in a hotel for about a week. And then we finally rented a house in the next town over. And it was a very difficult time for my parents, for all of us, right? So now it's summer and I'm getting ready to go into seventh grade. That's I'm 12 years old. And I like, I want a bra. (laughs) I want, I want hip hugger jeans. I wasn't even allowed to wear jeans at that point in my life. Jeans. I mean, like babies wear jeans now, but it was just a time. And so it was, it was a very required to wear a dress instead. No, I was, it was just, you know, pay, you know, regular appropriate. It wasn't, or it wasn't, yeah. But my parents, yeah. you know, it was kind of a strict upbringing. And so yeah. now I'm in this new town, I'm meeting new kids. I'm hanging out with my brother who's a year older than me. He's already into porn, right? So he's showing me shit and everything. And, and I it was just now I'm coming into puberty and I'm getting past a joint or getting offered to smoke a cigarette. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Let's try this. So it was, it was the escape from all of the turmoil of everything that was going on for the adventure that life was becoming for, you know, feeling all the um, emotions and the changes in my body, all of that. And then we finally did move back into the house and then they sold the house and moved when I was 13. And that just tore my heart another hole. It was so horrible, all of it. So that's why suddenly I'm like this like hellion Mm. of of escapism. We're just trying to get out there because I didn't know how to process it all. I didn't know how to feel it all. And it was scary, sad, 
upset time. But as soon as I found pot, as soon as I found beer, I was like, oh, this is fun. This takes the pain away. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's one of the things I've heard from so many people is um, that, you know, that experience of and, and just that experience for so many of us who are sensitive, that experience of that first taste of bliss from that first drink or that first drug, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I feel normal. I feel like a normal person. I'm not stressing out about everything. I'm not worrying about everything. I'm not thinking about everything. And, you know, it's really understandable why so often I think many people with who are highly sensitive and empathic end up going the route of addiction in some form or another because it you do feel better. Yeah, I'm with I'm, you. I'm curious with your dad, did, was this a bottom for him or did he keep kicking that can down the road? Oh, I'm so sorry. He did go to treatment, um, during my later teenage years and my mom got help in Al-Anon and that helped a lot because that's how I knew that alcoholism didn't work, but I was off on a tangent. I was drinking and drugging. I will tell you two more quick stories. In my 10th grade of high school, there's only like, I don't know, 180 days in the school year. I skipped 62 of them. Thank God they didn't have cell phones back then. So Uh they couldn't be tracked. But I'll tell you, I hated, I didn't want to go to school. I just couldn't stand it. My first week in my junior year of high school, I spent in detentions, making up for all the detentions I missed in the previous year before they would give me my schedule. And the same thing in my senior year, except in my senior year, after the first day, I went down to the principal and I said, give me my effing schedule or I walk. And he Mm -hmm. gave it to me. Thank God. Mm -hmm. And I worked out a program that I could leave school every day at noon and go to work on the work study program or whatnot. So I did that. And then between the ages of 17 and 24, when I got sober, I moved seven, no, 13 times. 13 times. times. Yep. Because I was trying to figure out who I was and I was with this boyfriend and I was with, you know, that boyfriend kind of thing. Um, I actually stayed with this one guy for two years and, uh, and then I left him when I knew I was about to cheat on him. I didn't want to stay and cheat on him. So I left and, you know, it's just constantly running, constantly trying to find and figure out who I was. And then I took the geographical cure to Texas because I figured the reason I was so screwed up was because my father was an alcoholic and my mother was too controlling. And, you know, my boss sucked and I got fired from this job and that boyfriend, you know, too many boyfriends. I needed to leave. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, so I did. And I I did find myself like I did. I knew I had more potential and I wanted that, but I couldn't figure out how to deal with the pain, that pain, that empathic pain that I didn't know. So that first year in recovery was so freaking hard. Mm -hmm. It was so painful. Every single day, that voice would say, just fucking drink. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to know or whatever. Or you're too young. You're all the things. And I just, but after I started working the steps and after 90 days, I did my fifth step 
which is, you know, shared with another human being and with your higher power, the exact nature of your wrongs. I had done a four-step in inventory. I'd really looked at myself and said, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. You know, I I didn't Mm -hmm. do everything right, but a lot of it was because of drugs and alcohol. And now that I'm on this path of personal growth, let's try to be as best as best as we can be. And they told me, they taught me how to feel my feelings, like just freaking cry. Jen, I cried every day for probably mm. two years. I could start crying just thinking about how much I cried. Yeah. I don't know. It, where does that reservoir of tears come from? It's just constantly could be coming out forever. That's what it felt like. It would never end that emotional roller coaster. But I did learn. And I learned through self-love, you know, loving myself. I learned through self-forgiveness. And I learned to look within instead of constantly trying to fix myself with a new car or a new boyfriend or a new, uh, you know, something, a new jacket or a pair of shoes. And uh, I just started to really look at who I was. And that's why I got so interested in personality and um, spirituality and also just really... Um, stepping up into the best person that I could possibly be. Mm -hmm. You know, you're speaking, I'm thinking about, and it would be really interesting how many of us doing the fourth step and the fifth step was really the very first place where we started looking at our own stuff. Mm. And particularly for people who come into recovery at a very early age, you know, in their 20s, because I mean, in the grand scheme of things, most people tend to hit bottom a lot later in life than in their in their early to mid 20s. But I'm just I was just really thinking about like that experience of that self-awareness, that self-scrutiny, the willingness to look at ourselves and to be like, okay, I can really see character defects here and need to do something different about it. So I just, I love that. I love that you embraced it. You know, what well, a you miracle. have to, you have to, because if you don't, the voice in your head never stops telling you what never a hole you are or right. what, that you're not enough. Yeah. yeah. And that, that fear that I call it the fear voice that tells us that we're not enough. Or if you don't do this for somebody else that you won't be loved or accepted. It's constantly looking for the, you know, at, for the good opinion of other people. I call it goop, right? Mm -hmm. Don't get stuck in the goop, the good opinion of other people. Figure Mm. out who you are and take your power back. Because when, you know, if you don't, if you don't take your power back, then you'll never really be happy. You'll constantly be looking for significance in other people's eyes, right? And that inner work has to start inside. All right, Maureen, let's look at you. Well, what are you? I'm a freaking liar. I'm a thief. <laughs> I'm a, I could be an a-hole sometimes, right? I could be inconsistent, undependable. But when I started looking at, okay, you just, I have to be honest and, you know, and say to somebody, you know what, what I just told you wasn't true. I like mm-hmm. to embellish. I like to tell stories. So I'm going to tell you something that's a little bit more interesting than what's the reality. And that's when I, you know, I just had to start looking at that and calling out my, character defects when I saw them or apologizing if I snapped at somebody or any of those things. But the truth is my inner negative voice was really, you know, pounding on me. I had to do a lot of work to change that. But until you get rid of your baggage, until you do that inventory and really surrender and continue, that's a continuous daily process. Daily process. 
then you don't really know who you are. You're still pretending, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're trying Mm -hmm. to save face or you're trying to be somebody that you're not. So the more authentic you can get, the easier it is to just say, oh, wait a minute, you know, so you can laugh at yourself. You can forgive yourself even when you make mistakes. I've one of the, made mistakes. <laughs> um, yes. 38 years of sobriety. 38 years of sobriety. Away from no, <laughs> it definitely doesn't take the humanity. If anything, I think it allows us to recognize, you know, to, to sit with the mess in a way that, you know, when we're first trying to be all perfect and good, we just can't. You know, I heard this saying a long, long, long time ago in the halls of, you know, of you can save your face or you can save your ass, but you can't save both, you know, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> That's good. Isn't that good? Yeah. You know, and it's too, like if your ass is on fire, you know, um, that's when you really got to, got to, you got to call somebody. You have right. to work with somebody to get it put out, put it out because otherwise it could drive you to drink again. And absolutely, I know somebody in the hospital right now had 22 years of sobriety and went back out and is now can't seem to get sober again. Oh, bless them. Yeah, it is. It is so heartbreaking to see the journey that people go through where people will have a lot of recovery under their belt. And then for whatever reason, they do pick back up. And I, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, I don't know, for me, it's sort of the grace of. I have seen people who were able to start, you know, who are able to casually drink after many years of recovery. They did the work. They're okay. And then I've seen people where it's like all it took was that one drink or that one drug or that one piece of candy. And they're just off and running again. And yeah, it's it's such an unpredictable thing. Well, it is unpredictable. And so at this point, do I want to screw with that? Exactly. Do you want to, do you want to take that risk? I don't want to take that risk. Yeah. 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 It doesn't, you know, it's fine the way it is without booze. And I save a lot of money. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of, you know, I mean, even if you, even if you have some control over it, do you really want to do that to your liver? (laughs) You know? No, but even as an empath now, Jen, I want to feel, I want to feel it all. I want to feel it all. I really do, even if it's painful. And in fact, because of the pain of some of that, those feelings and emotions that I've allowed myself to go through, it's driven me or pushed me farther into really understanding what this world is, how I'm best living in it, and that really it's all an illusion. Like it's just a big game. So we might as well just have a good time while we're doing it, which makes me not take things so personally. I don't, Mm -hmm. I I hardly ever take things personally anymore. And if I do, I speak right up. I'll just say, ouch, did you, did you mean to just tear me down right now? Like, really? Did you just say that? That hurt? Oh, no, I didn't mean to. Or, you know, okay, I'm sorry. They'll, they'll either apologize or take it back. But, you know, I don't I don't let those things fester anymore. Or, um, yeah. And I encourage all of my highly sensitive friends, which, and I definitely have some in my life. My, my daughter, who's now trans male, um, is um, highly sensitive. Same with a couple of people that I sponsor and some people that I actually am coaching mm-hmm. too, but not everybody is. And, and that's a good thing because boy, I don't, I w- wouldn't wish it on anyone really, but 
the point is self-acceptance. When we yes. accept our all of our stuff, who we are, our empathic abilities or whatever, just to have empathy with other people. I'll tell you, as a leadership skill, it is envied. Mm-hmm. It really is. Some people cannot get there. They don't know how to do it. They've tried and it's hard because they're not in touch with their own feelings. Right. Right. Uh, You just reminded me of when I was in seminary and I was taking a course on pastoral care and pastoral counseling, we were doing breakout groups where we were practicing pastoral skills, you know, and counseling skills. And I will never forget, I was role playing and I was playing the stressed out woman. And the other person was playing the pastor who was going to be like giving them support. And this person had taken notes on how they were supposed to be empathic. Oh, (laughs) oh my. And so they were like looking at the paper and looking at the notes. Hi, how are you? Oh, geez. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm really stressed. My husband just lost his job. And the person, the woman just looked at me like deer in the headlights because she could not, like, it was like, she did not know how to relate from an empathic perspective, okay. you know, can I just comment on that? Because yeah. I teach this stuff all the time. So as a facilitator of leaders who need to listen, give performance reviews, right? Communicate effectively. I've been teaching empathic listening and it's, it's, if you break it down, well, this is how I teach anyways, and try to keep it as simple as possible before when somebody says to you, especially if they come into your office and they're, they seem upset, everybody knows what upset looks like, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's not status quo. It's, you know, maybe their eyes are a little wide. I mean, they're, you know, they're trembling, they're frustrated, you know, they have a scowl on their face. There's all kinds of ways, right? That we can notice from their behavior if they're upset. Listen to them before you try to fix any kind of and provide any kind of solution. You just pair it back what you think they said or what you think they're feeling and why. Okay. So if somebody comes in and says, I can't believe it. You know, I really thought I was going to get that job and I just heard that Sue got it. So my response is, I don't have to say, I don't have to respond directly. I can just say, oh, so you're really frustrated and upset because you didn't get the job. All I'm doing is saying, what did they you're just mirroring. say? Right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, Right. And that just that alone saying to somebody, oh, so you're upset because your car broke down and you didn't make it to your appointment on time or you're frustrated because, you know, so and so just totally cut you off in the middle in front of all those people and made you look bad, whatever it is, just doing that with people helps them to say one, they're either going to say, yes, you get it. That's how I feel. I can't believe it. And then it will shift. Mm-hmm. I, now I'm sad that I didn't speak up for myself or they'll go on with whatever they want to talk about. Or they'll say, no, I'm not upset. I'm enraged and they'll get more out. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the thing until they get all their emotions out on the table and feel like they've been heard. They can't hear any solutions. They can't hear any answers. Period. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> You know, I think that we as a culture really underestimate the importance of being witnessed and being held and just being acknowledged that and especially for 
uh, healers and coaches and, you know, people in the, in, in all kinds of helping professions, it's fascinating how frequently we rush into rescue, we rush into solution, we rush into advice giving mode and, and even empaths. Like, I think that often, because if we've not done our own work about being willing to sit with our own feelings, we feel better when other people feel better. And so we often rush into rescue and try to make it better or smooth it over because it is uncomfortable sitting with that erupted emotion until we learn how to do that. And you're so right on. Yep. I agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you spoke about going from that first year. I keep on pulling, going back in time a little bit. You spoke about being in that first year of recovery and how agonizingly painful it was to be sober and feel the feelings. And I, the, one of the things I, I've heard people say in, in program before is, you know, that if you, um, you know, the thing about recovery is that you feel better, except that they're not necessarily saying you're going to feel good. You feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I love that. We don't necessarily say it's going to get better. We say it's going to get different. It's going to get different and you can feel, and you can feel better. Like you can feel more effectively than you did before. For sure. So what I'm wondering is, you know, that first year and what a miracle that you just kept showing up, that you kept coming back, that you kept doing the work and that you managed to get through that year sober. But I'm wondering, like, how did you go from, I don't want to feel these feelings and I'd rather be drinking to bring it. Yeah. That's a process, isn't it? That's like saying, how did you get from, you know, being a toddler to being a teenager? Or how did you finally mature? It just takes time, right? And it takes a lot of practice. But what I did was I moved back to Connecticut and I dealt with all my family stuff. Now I had a year and a half sobriety. And do you know that I probably, I met my husband at about a year and a half of sobriety. I, about three months after I moved back to Connecticut, I met him and I fell in love like instantly. Like we both just fell in love. It was freaking magic and rainbows and unicorns. I'm telling you. So there was sparks that were flying and all of the things. And then we were studying like um, all kinds of really cool stuff over and above, like what was happening in our, in our 12 step program, uh, as far as spirituality and, and, and people who were channeling and how to, you know, leave our bodies and do all that kind of cool, fun stuff in the, in the non-physical realm and Richard Bach and cool mm-hmm. books and stuff that I read, Rampha, if you remember them. But anyway, I totally remember Rampha. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we, which I just recently, Learned a really interesting thing about Ramtha is that um, apparently Joe Dispenza was one of Ramtha's or Ramtha's um, uh, curriculum faculty members. Oh, really? Yeah. Awesome. Isn't that a little interesting little, isn't that an interesting little tidbit? Yeah, it is. Yeah. We all started and we just all, we're on the same path. We just Mm -hmm. have different situations, different. Okay. So that's so cool how that happens, but I got my job in corporate and Mm -hmm. I started on my merry journey. I had something like 13 different jobs in the 27 years that I worked there. And I had a baby, raised a family, and I kept working on myself. 
And then I got into Myers-Briggs type personality, right? So I really wanted to do that. In my 30s, I totally studied that. I all the ins and outs of it. And at one point, they, I said, I, I need to teach this. I'm a teacher. You know, I could be teaching this stuff. And I was speaking a lot. I was in very involved in Toastmasters. And I love to tell my story in AA and, and really all that stuff, right? So I was speaking a lot. And, and somebody said, you can't teach Myers-Briggs personality type indicator unless you have a bachelor's degree. And I was like, what the F? Like, that's not fair. I know this better than some people with masters, whatever, you know? So I said, you know what? Maybe it's time. Maybe this is a sign to go back to school. So I went back and I got my degrees in um, psychology, my undergrad in, and then my master's in education um, in my forties. And also in my forties, I studied the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a very complicated ancient Sufi tradition that was sort of taken over in the mid uh, 1900s by Franciscan friars and Jesuit priests and, you know, all, you know, the kind of the Catholic Christian um, genre. But still, my mom was doing it. I learned a lot from her. And then I read a whole bunch of books on it because I'm constantly wanting to dive deeper in who am I and what should I be really doing with my life? I'm almost 40 years old and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, right? (laughs) I've been sober for 15 years when I went back to school. So I did go back to school and I learned a ton of stuff about myself in psychology, of course, by studying all those books and doing all the learning. In the meantime, um, I was maturing. My daughter was, you know, growing up into, you know, all of that. I was helping a lot of people in the program and my relationship was deepening. It just, you know, life just keeps getting better and better and better and better. It just doesn't stop. So it didn't, I never just sort of arrived, but I will tell you that recently, even most recently, like even this year, 20 or last year, 2022, I finally, Jen, I finally feel like I have arrived. I don't know why it freaking took this long, but I feel like I can finally say, yes, I am knowledgeable in this. Yes, I can teach people how to do this. Yes, I am helping people in my coaching program. Yes, I'm a master trainer, you know, and I started calling myself a personality expert because I finally can own it. And it it just doesn't happen overnight. It does not (laughs) happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. And I just want to, I know from my own journey and from talking with so many women, how hard it is to claim that expertise, how hard it is to just say, I know my fucking shit. Like, I really know this. And, you know, whereas ironically, you get these like 30 something experts, you know, know, and influencers on Instagram who don't know shit. Yes, I know. What 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 explained deleted are we gonna say here, right? No, I know. And and we can't judge because honestly, right? But but at the same time, it's sort of like life experience, life experience means so much. And I do coach people who are in their 30s. And I, you know, I tell them the most important thing that you ever have to learn is train your thoughts, train what's going on in your head to be nice to yourself, love yourself, be nice to yourself, have compassion with yourself because we're human and own your shadow parts, own that part of you that you really don't want to own. You can't just, because that's where our judgments are, right? It's like when I say, oh, that's not me. 
look at that jerk. That's not me. Yeah, it probably is part, some part of you, it's probably in there. So, you know, if we, once we do that, then suddenly other people don't push our buttons anymore. They, mm-hmm. I don't, I hardly ever get angry anymore. Right. I really don't. So that's the fun part. And I, I neglected to say that after the Enneagram, I got into the everything disc. And that's the one that I teach today to leadership teams and people at work on how to optimize their team using everything disc because it's the easiest one to explain. And it's the easiest one to really understand um, your the emotional mindsets of each of the four basic personality types. And we have all of them within us, but there's mm-hmm. one natural, one or two natural styles that we fall or gravitate to. So you can I've learn. never heard of this one before. Now, before we do, go, go there, just out of curiosity, what are you on the Myers-Briggs? On the Myers-Briggs, I yeah. am an E, N, F, and I'm right on the line with P and J. I always test I, out as a P, but I feel uh-huh. like I'm more of a J. A I, yeah, I, I'm an ANFJ in that I fall into the, I'm, I'm sort On of the line I with I me. I'm I yeah. me, so I'm yeah. an ambivert, okay. but I am an absolute NF and I'm definitely a J. I, you know, okay. and, and it's funny because I tend to attract a lot of clients and a lot of people who are P's. And I think that part of the reason why I attract people who are P's is that I am such a solid J. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I hear you saying this. What do you want to do? This or this? Okay. Make a decision now. <laughs> That's so, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So the everything, the everything wheel, the everything. Oh, everything disc. Everything it's, disc. It's, okay. It's the disc. Yep. It's yeah. the brand is everything disc from the Wiley and Sons. They're a publishing company that uh, has an, has an education arm. And mm-hmm. they've been in business for 50 years. And the Harvard professor that created DISC, um, you know, all of the scientific research is, um, we call it the real DISC. So everything DISC is a model, if you imagine a circle, and D stands for dominance, mm-hmm. I stands for influence, S stands for steadiness, and C stands for conscientiousness. And each one of those, you know, has their sort of style and uh, has emotional mindsets and has other things related to the personality that is so useful to know about you and your teammates at work, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I teach most of the time. Well, and I, you know, we're getting towards the, I'm like, oh my goodness, we're at the 50 minute mark already. (laughs) I knew this conversation was going to go by really, really fast. So, and I want to, there's just so many questions I've got for you about all of this. You know, before you and I jumped on to uh, the camera or actually onto the audio, because this is not a visual podcast. (laughs) Anyway, um, before we jumped on to recording, we were talking about just the impact as an empath, just the impact as a human being about kind of when we don't understand how other people are working, when we don't understand personalities how often that can really throw us, that can really like flummox us. And um, so I just really wanted to hold that up in terms of like the driving thing about the importance of understanding people's personality types and understanding our own personality types is like, it keeps us out of trouble essentially. So for sure. Yeah. I just wanted to sort of highlight that piece about this. So I would share um, in response that the more that you understand who you are, the less 
self-occupied you can be, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we're in our 20s, everything, like I'm the center of the universe. Everything's about me. And it's, and when I'm, when I have trauma, all I can think about is that trauma. When I have a bad relationship or a problem, all I can think about is that problem. I'm not thinking about other people. I don't care what their freaking personality is, right? I don't care, you know, blah, 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 what they think of me until I care what they think of me, right? Then, then it's like, suddenly I'm obsessed with what they, what, so we all have this same sort of stuff that's going on in our brain, but until we if we want to be really effective on a team or certainly as a leader, and I, that's what I teach, um, then you need to know yourself inside and out so that you know what's going to trigger you and you know how you can shut that down in yourself and not react, right? Because that's what we always hate ourselves for later is reacting rashly or with some, you know, choice set of words, like you're such a whatever. (laughs) And we don't like ourselves for that. We don't feel good about that. The second thing I want to say is we all have an ego, right? Within ourselves, we have a soul or spirit and we have an ego brain, the Mm -hmm. mind that thinks and rationalizes. And there is a part of that ego that I learned about ego. I thought, oh, well, that's when people are superior, when they think they're so great and they're all confident and they think they're, you know, their shit don't stink. But honestly, the ego also triggers fear all the time. Yes. Our fear yes. is our ego brand as well, right? Yes. So that keeps and us self-diminishment. Small. Exactly. Yeah. It wants to keep us small because it doesn't want us to be uncomfortable. It doesn't want us to push our edges. It wants to, us to not shine our light because then the ego goes away. When we mm. start living out of our spirit voice, when we start living out of our, you know, our real purpose in life, when we start really shining our light, the ego gets all, you know, upset. And that's when the saboteur pops our, its little ugly head and does that. So the more you know about yourself and the more you know about your personality and your ego, the easier it is to live your life because you can decide to be happy. Oh, you know, you can decide I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to be confident now. You can change your thoughts. You can change your mind. You can change your life. And that's how transformations happen right? Is doing that kind of inner work. So it starts with that. And you really can't, or or I'm going to make a judgment and say, you shouldn't (laughs) be in leadership. If you have not done this work, you can't, how can you lead others? You've heard the same, that saying, right? You can't really be in a relationship and love someone else until you love yourself, or you can't Mm -hmm. allow somebody to love you until you can love yourself. It's Mm -hmm. the same thing with leadership. Mm-hmm. You, know, you really need to learn to lead your inner self before you can start leading other people appropriately right. and honestly. Right. Well, and, you know, and thinking about sort of that thing of like, you know, the 30 somethings who are, are you know, inf- influencers and everything. I mean, I think about, I think in some ways that the difference between where I was at, at that, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, and so excited to have a tool and to have relief that I wanted to share it with the world is that now there is a platform for people to get to reach a very broad audience in a way that all I was doing was standing on a soapbox and shouting, know. And, you know, and stand, you know, stand, you know shouting out from out on the, on the street corner, but yeah. I didn't necessarily have that much reach. Whereas I think, you know, we have this younger, you know, people who are still in that process. But I guess the thing that I'm thinking is 
you know, it is, there's a place for all of us, even before we get fully, fully vetted within our, you know, within our self, our emotional intelligence and within our thing. Like, I know that, that it's almost like, I think about who I was as a 30, as a, as a 25 year old, 30 year old healer learning how to do these things. And I sometimes cringe at some of the things that I did thinking, because I didn't know any better. But and, how else are you going to know? But how else start? are you going to know? Exactly. <laughs> and I so I just go on. I was just saying, I remember the first time I ever spoke in front of an audience. It probably sucked, but I yes. did. You know, it's like you have to do it the first time you ever read somebody. Right. Or, or or give any kind of a healing session. You have to practice. That's you have to is. practice. Yeah. You have to practice. Well, and, you know, something that I've told people that I think is really helpful is go into a YouTube channel of an, somebody that you really respect, like somebody who's like, you know, you're like they have arrived. Yeah. And go back into their go look at their like entire library or whatever their podcast, whatever. And go listen to the very first, yeah. like watch a couple of the very first things. Nobody is polished when Word. they first start. No. And, you know, I, I always find it really ironic. The people who are really freaking out about doing like their very first Facebook live or their very first oh, video. Yeah. Cause I'm like, Oh honey. Yeah. I yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you go viral, that's going to be kind of an absolute miracle. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's probably like, you know, talk to me after you've done like two or 300 of these. And then, you know, like if it's, but because it's like, you just have to keep doing it and doing it and doing yeah. it and doing yeah. it and doing it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm and with then, you. It's, and then you get hard. to this. Do you remember the first time you put out a blog, even just hitting like go, it was so hard. Like, oh my God, people are going to read my words. <laughs> if you're lucky. I <laughs> Now it's like, oh my gosh, I've written like 892 or something. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. So it's it's just time. I think that's that's it. And also though, we have to begin to really step into those identities when we're younger so that we can fully own it when it's when it's time. Um, you know, so that's yeah, that's the thing. And we can help people to do that now, you and I, because we have the experience that we need that we because we've been through it. Yeah. And, you know, the willingness to be willing to sit through the pain, the willingness to be willing to show up for ourselves and the truth of who we are. I really want to pull back out or just hold up the piece that you said about knowing myself or knowing ourselves is really the key to breaking free from the limitations of our ego and to be able to really serve. Because when we know ourselves, we can we can sort of cut off our reactivity at the pass. And I think that that is such an incredibly important thing. I also really want to acknowledge too that you are an empath and you are owning your stuff. Like you are, because I think sometimes one of the challenges for empaths is that we can get so caught up in our absorbing other people's stuff that we will not necessarily take responsibility for or own our own shadow. And oh yeah. Yeah. It's a trap. Oh, it is a trap though. Yeah. But the thing is, if you see something in somebody else that you don't like, you know, that's usually because it's in you. And so I, you know, as an empath, I 
yes, I do pick up. I can feel other people's suffering. I can feel other people's pain, but I know now I can hold that space and allow them to feel it within the space. And then I can let it go afterwards. I got crystals in my office too, that soak up some of that stuff. And I, you know, I try to rinse, rinse out the energy and, and, but people don't come into the office anymore. I'm on, I'm on zoom most of the time. So it's, it's honestly a lot easier. It's Mm -hmm. a lot easier because I don't, even though I can still empathize, I don't have to feel the stuff that they're feeling. Um, But I know how to let go of that now. I really, because I take care of myself and I meditate every day and I exercise and I write and I let it go or I vent. I I vent to somebody because I'm an extrovert. That's what I do. (laughs) And it's really, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful life. And because I don't, you know, I know myself and I don't let things trigger me anymore because it's like, oh, I already did that shadow work. I don't have to, that doesn't bother me anymore. That's their problem. It's so much easier to when the feelings do come, when I, you know, and another thing I don't do, Jen, is I don't watch the news Mm -hmm. because I get, I mean, I was reading something today and I started crying. I mean, it's up to 11,000 over there in the you yeah. know, in Syria and Turkey with the kills, you know, it, it, I don't want to say words like, oh, it kills me because I don't want to be killed. <laughs> Our words are powerful, yeah. um, but it's, um, it's heartbreaking. I, I, I take on the suffering of the world and yeah. I, I don't, it's too overwhelming. So yeah. I do protect myself in that way. I don't yeah. get involved in all of the pain in the world. I can't, I won't. And I, and Honestly, inner peace or world peace starts with inner peace, right? And I have to maintain that peace. Absolutely. Well, and I think that we are living in a time where we have reach and access to so much more information than we have ever had before. And I think it gives us a disproportionate sense of, um, of power and responsibility that sometimes we just have to come back to the first step and admit we're powerless and that you know, and turn it over to God that, you know, that there's that, that this is, this is beyond, this is, this is out of my wheelhouse. And, you know, it just, it's so intense. Maureen, I can't believe how fast the time has gone by. (laughs) I knew I would. So I've got a couple. So, so two things, uh, actually three things. So the first thing is, is there any, so, and I'll just tell you what they are so that you can be thinking about it. So the first question is, is there anything else that you're just like, burning, dying. You have to say it before we we are done. The second one is, since you've listened to other podcasts, you know that I do this. If you could go back in time, because I believe that these podcasts are time travel and you could go talk to the hellion or whatever, whoever it was, maybe it was the struggling, the the woman and young woman in recovery struggling, what would you tell her? And then the final question is going to be, how do people get in touch with you? But so first question, first piece is burning thing. Like, what, is there anything else that you're like, I have, I must be sure to say this thing. No, I, I think you pulled a lot of really good stuff out of me today. I was totally prepared to go through the whole disc and talk about each of the types, but you know what? You can find out more information on my website about that. And I I'll talk about that after the, you know, in the third question. Um, but your second question, what would I tell myself? And I've done this exercise. And if nobody's done it, I would say, go back in your mind and pick out what teenage year was the most painful and talk to her 
and and tell her, you know, I've done a lot of work on my 14-year-old and my 19-year-old. And my 14-year-old, I still have a lot of pain about because I know that I abandoned her and, you know, she was raped and I never acknowledged it for years. And the things like that, that are stuff, I just, and, and my 19-year-old too, um, there's things that happen there. And I just go back and I tell them all the time, I love you and it's going to be okay. I promise it's going to be okay. And I remember I did um, a meditation about, I think I was just about 40, just turning 40, is 15 years sober. And I remember doing a meditation where I met my um, future self and she is me now. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Tears are coming. So I, I then, like I said, in 2022, about six months ago, I did this meditation where I went back in my timeline. I, I met my future self, which is only like three months away or something. And that's why I say now I have arrived because yeah. I know that I am the person that's been going back and visiting my younger selves along the way. And mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful to have stayed on the path and have continued to look at myself and work on myself and love myself, even when I make the big mistakes, you know, and, and there still are sometimes <laughs> big mistakes, but now I treat myself better than I ever have. And I encourage every listener to do the same. Oh. It doesn't matter. It's going to be okay. Mm, Maureen, this has just been such a rich, beautiful, real, authentic conversation. Thank you so much for bringing your beautiful soul and your light and your love to this conversation. It's been so good. You're so the welcome. final question, how do people get in touch with you? So you can find me on my website. It's EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com. And I will share with you two offers. One is free. If you mm -hmm. do want to find out more about what animal best represents your personality or leadership style, take the quiz. Okay. It's a nine question quiz. But if you want the full deal, um, well, once you take that, you'll get more information about the full deal, but it's $150. It's a 20 minute online assessment. And then you get to spend an hour with me talking about the most important person in the world, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you, because yeah. it is, it's true. Each one of us is the most important person in the world. And if yeah. we don't take care of us, we can't take care of others. And really we need, we do a lot of taking care of others. Don't we? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I'm imagining that even if somebody doesn't identify as being a leader within a corporate structure or something like that, this information is really valuable, I think, for pretty much anybody because leadership shows up in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of places. Okay, so, so here's yeah. the thing. If you're uh if you've ever facilitated a meeting, you're a leader. If you're if you have other direct reports, yes, you're a leader. That's the obvious one. But if you're any kind of on a volunteer thing in the community, you're a leader. If you're, you know, doing anything to improve yourself, you're a leader. If you're a mother, you're a leader, right? There's so many ways that you can be a leader. Um, without having to have people report directly to you in a formal structure. And you're leading the people in your lives by how you live your life. You know how some people say, I, you know, personally, I don't pray anymore because my life is my prayer. Mm -hmm. 
you know, um, because I know that the universe is, is working through me, not just like for me or for what I pray for it's working through me. And so the more you get a hold of your inner leader and get that, that down, that sinking down and that discipline of self-care, then you're going to be an awesome leader for everybody else in your life. That's what I believe. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been so rich. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.